Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. We'll, we'll say it's done. Okay. All right. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Fox Farm Vineyards uh, with David Fish. Uh, it's June 19th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, David. We really appreciate it. Rich, thank you for being here. Uh, let's start off by asking you, why wine? Why wine? I started as an apprentice wine steward when I was, uh, I was a kid. I think I was 18 years old. Uh, once upon a time, the, the drinking age in the nation was 18 uh, or a tiny bit higher. And I started as an apprentice wine steward working at a resort owned by uh, Lawrence Rockefeller's hotel company. <laughs> And then they opened a resort in uh, Scottsdale, and I went out there and ultimately became their wine director. And after that, a bunch of lateral moves. I uh, helped a friend open a restaurant, I waited tables, I tended bar, I worked as a consultant, I worked in liquor stores and wine shops. I was a concierge for six months. Theoretically, I did everything you can do, good or bad, in food and beverage and hospitality. And then I came up here in uh, May of 2000. Five with uh, came up for a symposium with a uh, lady that became my wife, mm-hmm. a guy that became my business partner. We took all our money, maxed out our credit cards, bought some vineyard land, and started making wine. Wow! So you started really young. Was there something about wine that appealed to you at an early age? No, I think if I had to go way, way back in about ninth grade or something like that, I was in high school French, and our uh, our instructor, I believe her name was Janet Chaffee she showed some photos of these old French castles. And that just sort of caught my eye for French culture. And French culture is everything. It's history, it's food, it's, uh, it's everything. And, and the wine is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, someday I will visit that castle. And I haven't. I've been to France three times, haven't visited that one castle, but that was my first start. And again, in learning about anything French, sure. um, wine becomes a big part of it. Sure. Was there a certain kind of wine that you were attracted to at the start? Um, at the time, no. I, I really don't think I had any particular first interest. Mm-hmm. I know now that, um, as I can put it better into words, I like cool climate wines with a little higher acidity, a little brighter, a little crisper, maybe with more sense of place. Okay. So at one point in there, you mentioned you, uh, you were sommelier. So mm-hmm. what, tell me about the kind of process of becoming that, why you chose kind of that path, and then what it was actually like being a som. Absolutely. Being a sommelier is the most fun part of anything that you can do in the wine industry. By that I mean when you're ultimately pouring the glass of wine. Everything up until then is either farming, inventory, chemistry, or warehousing. When you finally pour the glass of wine, that's the enjoyment, that's the payoff, that's the bullseye. And ultimately that interaction with people that are, that are drinking wine is again the biggest reward. Mm-hmm. So what kind of skills did you have to bring to a job like that? What kind of learning curve is there to be a SOM at that level? Sure. So there are such things as, as master sommeliers, of which I have nothing to do with that. That is, that is the highest you could ever be. Mm-hmm. The difference between being a master sommelier and what I am, or was, is the difference between saying, you know what, I kind of like reading John Grisham movies, or I'm a lawyer. <laughs> Not the same thing. So I'm the, I'm the entry level. But um, if you've ever worked as a waiter or a waitress or a bartender, it's all about finding the right, uh, finding the right thing, the right food, the right drink for your guest, finding something that makes them happy, hopefully something that goes with the food. Mm-hmm. And uh, having worked as a waiter 
um, you develop some of those skills. Uh, being a waiter or being a waitress, being a server is not the sexiest job in the world, but it it will it will absolutely make you the most um, multifaceted, think on your foot person in the world. Sure. So tell me about the kind of education process for yourself in terms of learning how to give the right person the right thing at the right time. Certainly. I think it's mostly carefully listening to, uh, to the guest, responding to their wants and needs. And uh, sometimes you need to be a thesaurus. Sometimes you need to uh, hold up a word that they say, like a, like a Rubik's Cube, and make sure that you're thinking the same thing. Uh, a very common uh, question we have here is uh, identifying or isolating the words fruity and sweet. They're not the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. As a reference, pineapple is fruity and sweet. Uh, cranberry is fruity and not sweet at all. Uh, the word dry is sometimes uh, a word that people will use or perhaps misuse. Uh, using the word dry, they may use that as uh, perhaps a level of, uh, of quality. They might say, I want your driest wine, thinking it means finest. Really, it's only an absence of sugar. So uh, again, sure. making sure that we are uh, bridging the communication gaps and and trying to push all the right happy buttons for people. Sure. So you mentioned coming up here and, and kind of investing into this. So what mm -hmm. was it about this idea that appealed to you? What made you want to kind of throw all in with this idea with Fox Farms? I remember in 1987, uh, I met Richard Erath, uh, better known as Dick Erath, uh, the founder of Knudsen Erath. I was a wine buyer for a resort in Scottsdale, and I met Dick Erath. And I was just a kid, I was probably 21 or something like that. And he was one of the legends of the industry and he came down and he said, I'd like to introduce myself, my name's Dick Erath, we tried his wines and he said, someday you should come to Willamette Valley. And I said, I will. He said, come visit me. I said, I promise you, if I ever go to Willamette Valley, yours will be the very first winery I ever visit. And then 19 years later it was. <laughs> And so at that point, what was it that kind of wanted, made you want to stay? I came up here and I just wanted to know more. Um, I loved Oregon wines. I loved the sense of place. And I'm probably not the first person that's been seduced by the Travel Channel. Right now there's someone watching some daydream on Travel Channel or Food Network and Giada de Laurentiis is stepping out a French door in a diaphanous robe, the sunset and vineyards. Everyone's going like, holy moly, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I don't want to be Giada de Laurentiis, but I like the balcony, I like the sunsets and the vines. People that have been to Napa, have been to Sonoma, have been other wine countries of the world, it seems everyone that's really into food and beverage will get that dream saying, I want to do this, I want to be part of this. Uh, the difference is an Oregon is an attainable dream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me about how you went about attaining it. How did you find the vineyards? How did you start your label? How did you get Certainly. this place? A whiskier background, I came up here again in May with uh, with my wife Desiree and my business partner Thomas. We came up here in May, really loved the area. We were here for four days. And then Desiree and I came back in July on vacation, came back in August on vacation, came back in September, and we found a property we liked and bought it. So we only had about 100 days from start to finish by choice because we knew it was right. We knew that in poker it was all in, mm -hmm. no plan B. Mm -hmm. And we found a beautiful property in Dundee on Fox Farm Road in the eastern foothills of Dundee and not foothills, toe hills, it's not way up, toe hills of Dundee. Uh, but five acres of very good vineyard land with our home property on it and uh, we just went for it. Uh, after that, it seems everyone knows everyone in wine country. Um, I, was at, uh, I was at a resort on Warden Hill Road and I met their vineyard manager, a man named Andy Humphrey. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, years later I leased two vineyards from him. He's now instrumental in planting our estate vineyard. Um, we finally uh, we finally pulled the plug in all of that, um, and that's our big exciting 2019 thing. So you came up here with a, obviously a really good knowledge in wine, hospitality, but not necessarily in the making or selling of, of your own wine. So how did you go, who'd you turn to? Was there, were there advisors? Was it just kind of finding it as you went? That's a, that's a solid question and the answer, we got a lot of advice from a lot of people. <laughs> um, I have to admit that uh, we surround ourselves with experts and that's the way things work well. Uh, our vineyard manager has grown grapes for 35 years. Our winemaker and his assistant combined have made wine for 45 years. So um, I feel more like a, uh, a restaurateur. If you own an Italian restaurant, you don't have to cut peppers. You have a chef cutting peppers, but you are sort of the front of house person. So um, I had a lot of uh, background in discussing wine, serving wine, presenting wine, mm -hmm. and probably developed a fairly good palate over the years. Mm -hmm. And even if not knowing exactly how to make it, if you can describe what you'd like, mm -hmm to your winemaker, that's the same as describing to your sommelier, this is what I like, sure. and they hopefully make it happen. Uh, from memory, when, uh, when the winemaker and I were first interviewing, I remember saying, well, clearly, Burgundy is the model. But if Burgundy, let's think Chambre Musigny more than Gervais Chambartin. Or once we've established that, for winemaking, let's think more of Georges Mounieret, a little bit less Domaine du Jacques. Whenever there's a crossroads, whenever in doubt, we'll aim towards delicate, we'll aim towards pretty, aim towards soft. And uh, I think it is, in fact, the under-manipulated wines that show more sense of place. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you mentioned kind of uh, hiring good people. So what do you consider your role in the business? What do you do on a kind of daily basis? Uh, on my business card, I wrote founder and ISI. Mm -hmm. um, in a three-person company, it's rather pompous to write president. Uh, chairman would sound unusual. I mean. Uh, earlier today, I was doing maintenance around the tasting room. I was recycling, I was banking, I was washing glassware. That's not what presidents and CEOs do. Uh, so operational director is probably reasonably fair. Um, um, again, I wrote founder and ISI. Um, I have a few friends that are master sommeliers. There's a tremendous amount of educated folks up here that are uh, certified wine specialists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wrote ISI as important sounding initials. <laughs> I wanted something, but I hadn't earned the biggie, so ISI seemed to fit. <laughs> and what part of the job do you enjoy the most? What is it about this job that brings the most pleasure? It's ultimately pouring wine for people. Um, if I can be a, uh, a bridge, a vocal gap to help someone, in fact, um, learn a little more about wine, or if I'm able to help them in the future find more of what they're looking for, that's, that's very rewarding. Um, I'm not, um, I'm not a big um, follower of all of our reviews, but if you read all of our reviews, everything that's ever been posted, there's a lot of themes. Most of them will hopefully say something like, funny, informative, friendly, and friendly, funny, informative, and for a bunch of that, there'll be like 48 of those, and the one, David's an a-hole. <laughs> they don't get me. But hopefully, we're making people enjoy wine, making them happy and come in. And I've had a lot of people come in and say, you know, we learned more here than we did any other place we have. So we try to make sure guests get as much or little information as they're looking for. Uh, one of the first questions I usually ask when people come in, I'll show them a map, explain where we are, why we have these different vineyard sites. And then I'll frequently ask, um, 
And usually I'll say, when I talk wine, would you rather have like mid-nerd or full-nerd? And make sure people hear what they want to hear. Sure. Uh, when I'm getting my car fixed, I want a mechanic to go. It's uh, electrical, 110 bucks. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear, well, the uh, dichromatic effluent exchange is entirely out of display, and the entire flange spectrum, you're only getting four out of eight. Uh, no, I don't, I don't want to know about that. I want to know 110 bucks electrical. So if I can give people the building blocks of wine information, mm -hmm. uh, enough perhaps confidence to ask the right questions, lead them in the right direction, uh, I'd like to do that. People could come in here and say, I hate Pinot Noir, I hate foxes, I hate guys with mustaches. I'm still going to try to point them in the right direction. <laughs> so that's it. We want to be good concierge in wine country. Sure. What do you find most people answer to that question? Do most people want to know the nitty-gritty details, or do most people just want you to pour wine and get out of their way? Um, high percentage want more details, mm -hmm. because they perhaps may not have gotten it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's my interpretation. I don't keep track of that, but more often than not, people say full nerd. And then if I see them start to roll their eyes or blow their bangs, I can always back it off a little bit. <laughs> and so what is it you seek to educate them in then? Well, if someone came in and said full nerd and then they were here for an hour, what would you hope they went away with? I would like them to know why our wines are different, uh, why our wines are different from our neighbor's wines, why each of our Pinots is different. In a normal year, we make two Pinot Gris, one barrel fermented, one stainless steel, mm -hmm. usually four or five different Pinot Noirs. Uh, we've also added uh, Syrah and Grenache and two Rieslings and Rosé. We have a pretty wide spectrum of wines. And the answer is not, hey, look at me with this big circus collection. The answer is hopefully saying, these are all different, here's why. Mm -hmm. If we go to the supermarket, get a bunch of apples, a Braeburn apple is different than a Fuji, different than a Granny Smith, different than a Pink Lady. Mm -hmm. uh, a Dundee Hills Pinot Noir is different than an Eola Amity Hills Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. different than a Yamhill Carlton or Chehalem Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. I'd like to be able to explain why to help people um, perhaps choose what they like more in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's about it. Again, Pinot Noir has, uh, has a sense of place about it. Mm -hmm. um, we're not big enough or cool enough for a mission statement. If we were, hopefully aromatics first, fruit and acid second, oak and alcohol third. And again, uh, gotta get a mission statement. Maybe a little one like precision, purity in place equals Pinot Noir. It's pretty solid. Thank you. How do you go about marketing your wine? Uh, we've been mostly word of mouth. We have two tasting rooms. We have this one here in Dundee. And uh, we're 35 yard line center of Dundee. And Dundee is not the center of the world, but it is ground zero modern Oregon Pinot Noir. Mm. Uh, I couldn't be happier. We have, uh, I'm not sure, 14,000 cars a day passes. Mm. Uh, we have very good visibility and we are bookended, surrounded by some of the most magnificent wineries in the, in the state and in fact in America. Uh, we're little guys. Um, I sometimes joke that uh, people are more often drawn to the, the exquisite properties up on the hills with the billion dollar views and, and I don't blame them. I'm human and there's a lot of wow factor up there. But what I'll usually say is go up there, have a great time, but while you're up there with the wizards and castles, don't forget the hobbits down here on the valley floor. <laughs> And so you sell your wine mostly direct to consumer in restaurants, is that correct? You don't have, you're not in grocery stores. Exactly right. We don't have any retail. The, I guess the, the nerdy term is on-premise only. Mm -hmm. So we have a distributor in Arizona. We have a distributor in Nevada. We have a broker in California. I distribute in Oregon. And we're in uh, restaurants, resorts, hotels, and casinos in four western states. So why that model? Um, part of it is... Uh, 
part of it's a little, uh, little bit of a thorn in my paw. There were so many times in the past when I was a wine buyer at a resort, so many times someone would walk up and say, hey, I have this wine for you to try. And I'd say, I absolutely love that wine. Um, say, I love the wine, I love everything about it. You say, it tastes exactly the way it should. Mm -hmm. It's got a sharp label. It's a fantastic price. I like everything about it, but I'm not going to buy it because it's on the end cap of every supermarket and every big box store and everyone knows that it's dirt cheap and I can't sell it here. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we wanted to sort of protect our uh, proprietary self for uh, restaurants, resorts and hotels. Mm -hmm. It seems they tend to prefer our wines, chefs and sommeliers, because they are again fairly delicate, fairly pretty. They're not high alcohol, they're not high oak. Um, seem to go well with food without overpowering it. Those are some of the reasons. We talked about being largely word of mouth at this point and having great location. Mm -hmm. How have you built your customer base over the years with, uh, without the kind of supermarket familiarity that some mm -hmm. brands have? First of all, we're very small. I am not saying that we, we couldn't sell more wine, but we don't need to be in a, in a big supermarket. Uh, we only make a thousand cases of wine a year. We're able to sell most of that directly to consumer and or to uh, to restaurants, resorts, and hotels. And uh, we have, again, two tasting rooms. We have built up a fairly good following over over a dozen years. Um, and we started very small. If we had started with a goal of going 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, 8,000 cases, we would have gotten our butts kicked. But we make wine and sell it, make wine and sell it, make wine and sell it. Sure. I think in anything you do, if your supply and demand is in line, you're, you're doing well. Sure. You've touched on, touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious if you can kind of clarify what you, how you describe your business philosophy. Certainly. Um, one of the first people I met uh, when, we, when we were talking about planning our home property, I met the late, great Gary Andres. He's a man that founded Pine Ridge Winery in Napa. He founded Archery Summit here. He founded Gypsy Dancer. And he asked a similar question. He said, how would you like to be viewed by your peers? And I said, I would like to be admired, certainly, but probably even more, I'd like to be respected. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, that shows weakness, but I still give you points for that. <laughs> he was... <laughs> Sounds like something Gary would yeah, say. Yeah, he said, uh, that shows weakness, but good for you. Uh, chin up, keep trying. <laughs> and um, we, uh, we try to be friendly and, uh, and casual. A lot of tasting rooms, you walk in and you feel like, oh my goodness, this is like church. Be quiet, don't touch anything. And others, you feel like you're in a big gift shop. And we wanted to feel like a living room. So we're fairly casual. We've uh, got a bunch of places to sit and catch up. We have you know, usually classic rock on in the background. And uh, we're not too big for our bridges. You mentioned your, your variety of varietals earlier, mm -hmm. Grenache, Syrah, some things that are a little more unusual here. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose to go with those? It's a no-brainer to just do Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris or Chardonnay, for example. Those are the classic industry building blocks of the area. But we wanted to offer a little more. Uh, when we very, very first opened, we only had two wines. We had a Pinot Noir and a Pinot Gris. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily enough to get you in the door. So once upon a time, we invited other small wineries to come in. And they were poured at our tasting room. And for a while, the nickname was like Fox Farm and Friends. <laughs> it sounds a little like Barney, but <laughs> we wanted to offer more. Uh, um, in the last 13 years, uh, um, we, we've again added other things. Syrah was uh, a building block that my business partner Thomas and my wife Desiree first uh, voted in. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't my first thought, but ultimately they pushed it through and it was a very good decision. Syrah has become a very important part of our portfolio. Mm -hmm. I prefer Grenache even more than Thomas does, but that's my payback. <laughs> and uh, 
everyone likes rosé, everyone likes Riesling, so we just try to have a little of everything. Uh, once upon a time, uh, the McDonald's founder, it's either Ray Kroc or Roy Kroc. I think it's Ray. Uh, let's assume it's Ray Kroc, let's assume he's up in heaven looking down, he's probably thinking, I, I didn't want to do McCaesars and filet of fish but on the other hand, we did sell 30 trillion cheeseburgers, so if it makes guests happy, it makes guests happy. Mm. I love having a wide variety of wine for people. We also have uh, true French champagne here. Mm. We've got some wonderful local craft beers. So hopefully something for everyone. I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's unheard of in hospitality. Sure. You mentioned beer, you also offer cider. What was behind the decision to offer other, other alcohols that are not just yours? So as a, as a rule of thumb, I would guess that 70 or 75 percent of the people that come in here for tastings are either a couple or mostly perhaps a group of young ladies traveling together or senior ladies traveling together. Wine tasting seems to be more of a more of a, uh, a wonderful uh, feminine uh, uh, pastime. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a stereotype, and there's such a thing as a positive stereotype, it wouldn't be unheard of for there to be four ladies in here having a blast and there's a guy in the back just kind of like this. And uh, we call that the brother-in-law thing. Like, hey, uh, Jeff, you thirsty? He goes, I don't like wine. You want a beer? Oh, hell yeah, I'll have a beer. So we have something for them, too. <laughs> that's, that's an excellent explanation. I like that. Um, before you got into the Oregon industry, when you were SOM and waiter and other things like mm -hmm. that, did you have an opinion of the Oregon wine industry? Did you have a thought on what Oregon wine was at that point? I always liked it. I, mean, I love Napa wine. I especially love Sonoma wine. I've been to California a bunch of times. I, th I think every wine lover goes to California, perhaps first in the United States. Um, I think California makes 30 times more wine than Oregon. I mean, they're, they're, um, they're the blockbuster. Uh, it's hard to ignore them. Um, but I went to Napa and fell in love with it. I went to Sonoma and fell in love with it. And then the first time I came here, I said, oh my goodness, control, alt, delete. Everything I know about American wine is changed. Mm -hmm. I said, Oregon has a sense of place. It's not companies making wine, it's people making wine. It's not all about a brand. It's about a place, it's about a property, it's about a vineyard, what makes it exciting. Mm -hmm. It's scaled for humans and I love it. Mm -hmm. You can identify with that person, identify with that, uh, that couple more easily than you can identify with that big brand. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so has your opinion changed now that you're part of the industry? No. No, even more so. I see that it's about relationships. I think earlier, Rich, I think you asked about how we choose certain vineyards. Mm -hmm. The answer might be that you, you just try a wine that you like. Mm -hmm. um, as an example, one of the best vineyards in our uh, portfolio is called the Weber Vineyard. <laughs> and I remember trying a wine that uh, Rob Stewart made. Um, that vineyard is also shared by Patricia Green, Rob Stewart, Winderly, Sokol Bloser, uh, Laurent Montelier, Rutterbury Marsh, Steve Goff, Colleen Clemens. It's pretty much everyone that can get fruit from there does. It stands out. If we could use Burgundy terms, that would be a Grand Cru site. Mm -hmm. And when something has the holy cow factor like that, you look into it. Mm -hmm. And when I approached that, uh, that owner, uh, Andy Humphrey, he, he said, I don't have any fruit, try next year. Next year he said, I don't have any fruit. Next year he said, hey, I've got an acre coming up. Do you want it? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it's sometimes it's supply and demand. It's sometimes just right place, right time. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the Weber Vineyard as being superb. That's, that's my favorite. Um, my favorites are Dundee wines. But um, over in Yamhill Carlton, if you choose a name like the Shea Vineyard, mm -hmm. 
that's royalty. There's a big wait list for people to get that fruit as well. And, um, and I respect that. Again, it's not the fact that it's Winery X Shea Vineyard. It's the fact that it's Shea Vineyard, mm -hmm. Winery X's mm -hmm. background. What about when you were looking for Grenache and Syrah and having to go outside the area? How did you go about finding your grape sources for those? Uh, our winemaker knew some growers in Southern Oregon, uh, down between uh, between Jacksonville and Medford. Mm -hmm. um, their names are the Moore family, M-O-O-R-E, and they have, I honestly think, 375 acres of fruit. They are a very big deal, and uh, they grow a little bit of everything. That's where we get our Rhone-style wine. That's where we get our Grenache and our Syrah. But they grow everything. They grow Cabernet, Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc, Tempranillo. They're, they're a, a huge melange. They're the, they're the biggest, most, uh, I almost cussed, I almost said bad blank. Biggest, most. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be the first. Biggest, most bad fella farmer's market of grapes in the world. And, uh, and they make really wonderful, uh, intense wine and we get fruit from them. So you mentioned some kind of things that are starting for you now or on the horizons. Tell me about what's going on at Fox Farm now, what you're looking for as you look, say, 10 years into the future. Sure. So we have had uh, several small downtown tasting rooms, mm -hmm. and uh, that has been the right thing for us to do. Um, we have not always had an estate property where we could, in fact, uh, have a winery and or have a tasting room. So we have five acres from the eastern hills of Dundee, which is, in my opinion, eminently suited for... Uh, for winemaking. We have a fairly big barn there. It would also be good for a tasting room. As we speak, meaning June 19th, 2019, I do not have a conditional use permit to do so, but we're optimistic. We're, uh, we're throwing a bunch of why not at it. And uh, we are planning on that being our winery and tasting room in three years. So uh, that gives us several years to gently massage um, the uh, the permits and make things happen um, and that's the dream that's the dream I'm very lucky now I only go a mile and a half to work but man wouldn't it be better to go 300 feet to work just down to the foot of the driveway to our own barn look out over vineyards and things like that absolutely so would that change your scale at all uh, it might it might uh, we've always stayed around a thousand cases certainly if in fact we do make that barn I've already been approached by another winemaker who would like to share that space so they could make 2,000 cases there as well. That would put us in a position where we, uh, we have more opportunity to do so. So you've been in the industry here roughly a dozen years, like you said. What have you seen change since you became part of the Oregon wine industry? It can be local or on the Oregon global scale. What what is the, what the industry has changed? Sure. So there's been a lot of uh, a lot of outside acknowledgement and interest. Um, there's been a lot of um, when I say foreign investors, I mean only out-of-state investors. <laughs> um, and again, uh, I said everyone's got the Napa dream. Everyone's got the Sonoma dream. You can only do that if you sell your dot-com company or if you, uh, if you inherit a bunch of money. Uh, it's an attainable dream up here in Oregon. Right now, somewhere, there's a judge in Washington, D.C. saying, you know what, I'm gonna sell my law firm, I'm gonna go to Oregon and make goat cheese. There's someone right now saying, you know what, I'm, I'm sick of working for uh, big company XYZ, I'm gonna go to Oregon and make craft beer. And there's guys like me saying, you know what, I'm, I'm sick of just serving wine, I wanna go and make it. And this is a great place to come, reinvent yourself, a great place to apply. There's enough uh, camaraderie and advice. Um, if you came here with a good work ethic and good ideas, a little bit of walking around money, you can probably have someone offer advice and help to make things happen. And uh, 
glad to be part of that. What we've accomplished is, uh, it makes me happy, but it's not all us. We've, you know, we've stood on the shoulders of giants. I've spoken to some of the founding fathers of the industry. I've learned from them. Mm -hmm. I've learned from second, third generation newer folks. I've learned from people younger than myself that are here and they have uh, a lot more background, a lot more, uh, a lot more drive. I'm foolish to not learn from those around me. Sure. So you found the industry still is welcoming to new people like you and, and, com and the camaraderie is still a big part of the Oregon wine industry then? It is, absolutely it is. Um, what do you buy for the future? What do you see as you look 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road for the Oregon industry in general? I think it will continue to be better and better. Um, I'm not being a total hippie about this. Uh, climate change is real. Could be that it's a five-year cycle. It could be it's Al Gore's fault, but it is warmer than it used to be. And small adjustments have to be made. It might be choosing slightly higher vineyard sites. It might be uh, choosing different clones that ripen a little bit earlier. It might be exploring areas just immediately outside of this AVA. It may be a tiny bit less Pinot Noir, a tiny bit more Grenache or Tempranillo. The answer might be slightly recreating uh, Willamette Valley, but I see only growth. Um, the prices in Oregon are a fraction of what they are in California winemaking or elsewhere. Um, one of the other good things, this is a very pro-hippie thing about it, is that um, the land here is protected. If a land is protected as agricultural, it's not going to get torn out and have 60 homes there. Sure. It's not going to become residential. It's not going to become uh, condominiums. It will stay as farmland. And so there is a certain amount of land that is right now developed. There is uh, a huge amount of land to be developed. Mm -hmm. So uh, Oregon is had wine for nearly 60 years. Uh, California's had wine for twice that. They've made wine in Europe since Jesus was in middle school. Um, Oregon is, uh, it's not full. It's still in its infancy. I see nothing but uh, opportunity ahead. Uh, as you look back uh, over what you've accomplished, Oregon and elsewhere, what, do you, what are you proudest of in your career? Uh, although Gary teased me about it, I think we've hit the point where we are respected. Mm -hmm. People seem to like our wine. Uh, I hear positive things like, uh, you know, they've learned more here, they've enjoyed themselves here, mm -hmm. they're not made to feel foolish for asking questions. Our wines are, uh, uh, our wines are priced for mortals. I think that's important. <laughs> our wines are good. They're not, they're not house wine, but they're not so expensive you have to wait for your 30th anniversary. Mm -hmm. You can enjoy a bottle of Fox Farm once a week, be perfectly happy. Or you can enjoy one five times a week and I'd be happy. <laughs> uh, you mentioned kind of, uh, you've kind of touched on this already, but what, what advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the organ industry today? Um, do a ton of research everywhere you go. Uh, ask questions and uh, take notes. Um, someone a long time ago said you have one mouth and two ears, it's because you should do twice as much listening as talking. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of information up here. Most of it is very, very freely shared. Mm -hmm. Certainly there's competition, but um, I think you know, with careful alliances, referring folks to other wineries that you admire mm -hmm. is, is important. Listen to the guest. If a guest says to me, I only like Cabernet Sauvignon, that's fine. I don't have any Cabernet but I know a dozen neighbors that have some magnificent Cabernet to point to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think if you ask questions and, and listen, that's 
that's great for anyone, whether you're a visitor, whether you're an investor, whether you hope to start uh, your own wine property. Sure. All right. Questions from here? All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there that's anything fine. else I should have asked? Anything else we didn't cover that we should have? Um, props to uh, Thomas Ratcliffe. Fox Farm co-founder. Uh, props to my wonderful wife, Desiree Neal. Inspiration and co-founder. She kind of keeps me on the path. And uh, thank you for thank you for letting us play in the reindeer games. <laughs> thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and your answers. And we will go ahead and let you out the hook. Pleasure of mine. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.